Good evening, everyone. It's lovely to see you all here, and um, I'm very happy to welcome you here tonight um, to the Psychoanalysis at LSE event. My name is Derek Hook. Um, I'm in the Institute of Social Psychology here at the LSE. I'll be chairing the event tonight. Um, just a few words about psychoanalysis at LSE. Psychoanalysis at LSE is a, is a research group of scholars largely based here at the LSE who are interested in pursuing a psychoanalytic line of analysis um, in relation to, to a series of societal, cultural, um, and political issues in today's society. This talk is the third, in fact, of a series of talks that we've had this academic session. Uh, in November, we played host to Anthony Gormley um, in a discussion on the theme of public space in the body. Last month, uh, Henrietta Moore and Stephen Frosch were in conversation with Jacqueline Rose on the topic of a uh, recent book, The Last Resistance. Um, and tonight is the third in the series of talks. Tonight's talk is entitled Modern Erotics and the Quest for Intimacy. And the talk will take the form of a three-way discussion between Susie Orbach, Henrietta Moore, and Renata Saletzel. Unfortunately, uh, Darren Leder, who was going to participate in the talk, isn't going to be able to be here tonight. He's got flu and so unfortunately can't attend. Um, I just also want to make note of the fact that tonight's talk is being recorded. There will be a, hopefully a podcast uh, made available of the talk later on the LSE website. So bear that in mind if you want to ask questions, the talk will be recorded. Um, so if you're not happy with your questions being recorded, then perhaps it's not a very good idea to ask them. Uh, just a few brief words about our speakers tonight. Uh, on my left is Susie Orbach. Susie's a psychoanalyst. She's a visiting professor here at um, LSE in sociology. Um, and of course, she's also an author. I'm sure many of you know her books. Renata Seletzel is a centennial professor here at LSE in law. And Henrietta Moore is a professor in social anthropology, also here at the LSE, and is currently at the Center for the Study of Global um, Governance. I think that's about all. I tell you what, let's give our speakers a warm round of applause, and then we will begin. Just one last um, word on the structure of the evening's proceedings. Uh, we'll speak, or our speakers will speak for approximately an hour, and then we'll uh, have questions from the floor for the last half hour. So that should take us to about 8 o'clock. Right, well, I think I'm first. Um, in fact, you'll be relieved to know that we're not all going to speak for an hour. That will be all together an hour in some, some one way or another. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what's happening to the structures and character of femininity in the, in the present moment, and in particular about two kinds of problems that arise from the notion that we, we perhaps all have, that we can have it all, that it's possible to be everything. Now, that, the two kinds of, of uh, having it all that I'm concerned about are, first of all, the idea that we can have careers and children and partners and homes and that somehow that will all be possible. And the other kind of having it all that I'm concerned about is the fact that in the new forms of femininity that are beginning to emerge, there is, in a sense, a shifting relationship between the structures and character of femininity and those of masculinity, the idea that young women and the forms of femininity that they are engaging with allow them, in a way, to be everything, including, uh, in a sense, the masculine. Now, of course, the sort of range of social and cultural and economic transformations that uh, we are experiencing, that we have been experiencing uh, since at least the middle of the last century, 
mean that new categories of young womanhood are emerging. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the way in which celebrity figures become iconic in this regard. So I'm rather taken, for example, with uh, uh, the uh, reported fact on a blog that um, Amy Winehouse, presumably before she went into rehab, uh, said, uh, I like pin-up girls. I'm more of a boy than a girl. I'm not a lesbian, though, at least not before a Sambuca. Hmm. Uh, I found this, this, this statement intriguing, partly because although I know what a lesbian is, I'm not sure I know what a Sambuca is. But the, um, <laughs> but the other side of it, of course, is the way that this makes a claim uh, about what is happening to the presentation of self and to the presentation of sexuality in the contemporary world. And I think if we're looking at, the, at, at, at uh, one of the major changes about femininity, perhaps since the middle of the last century, uh, and I'm talking here now in an advised way about what we might all broadly understand as the developed world, is that there are many, many different ways of being feminine, of being able to claim certain characteristics about what it is to be feminine. So that on the one hand now we have uh, what is becoming called more and more, I suppose, the feminine masquerade, or is sometimes called hyper-femininity, or sometimes uh, rather charmingly retro-femininity. And these are sort of uh, stilettos and pencil skirts and the particular ways uh, of, of managing the body and style of self. And this, of course, very much connected to consumerism, to the dominance of the fashion industry, to the way in which sources of authority and judgment for young women come increasingly from the commercial domain, from the construction of self within consumerism, um, and less perhaps from those traditional sources of authority uh, which we would have been familiar with in the past. That's the settled forms of family and patriarchy, perhaps even settled forms of the church. Um, another aspect of femininity that's become very important uh, and which I suppose is characterized in part, the real changeover perhaps comes from women of uh, my generation and, and many of you in this room who are younger than me, uh, which is unfortunately rather a lot at this moment as I look around, um, which is really the idea of the, of, the, of, the, of the woman who works, the new version of the working girl, the new version of, of educational and attainment and long-term relationship with, with the labor market, a kind of sense in which that working woman on the one hand looks like something very new, but on the other is someone who has accepted in a very deep way that she will be responsible for, or she will have this dual set of responsibilities for working and for the home. And so in a kind of unsettling way, it's hard to tell whether this is a new form of modern achievement, a new working, reworking of femininity, or whether it's actually a reconfiguring of normative femininity coming back under another guise. The third characteristic of, or third type, perhaps type is too strong a word, we can argue that when we have discussion at the end, is this question of what is sometimes called the phallic girl. That is the girl who is now the subject um, of newspaper record, reports. She's involved in uh, binge drinking. She's out on the streets late at night pushing other people around. She might even be involved in some kind of knifing event. Uh, where, in a sense, there's an engagement with a very aggressive and uh, violent presentation of self and of, of sexuality, uh, sometimes called the mean girl. Um, and I think the 
What's, what's interesting about all these forms of femininity, and I'm not in any sense suggesting that they're exhaustive, I think there are many, many more, um, particularly uh, we might want to talk about what's happening in uh, other parts of the world outside um, Western Europe, and we also might want to talk about what's happening in relation to faith and faith-based faith communities, which I think is extremely important. But this new form, these new forms of femininity are, I think, intensively managed forms or post-feminist forms of femininity. They're very gender aware, uh, so they're quite unlike the pre-feminist forms of femininity, um, but they are in a sense fully in uh, compliance with new forms of governmentality, so new policies about how women uh, should be and their roles and duties and so on uh, in society. Now, one of the illusions that I think that uh, is very prevalent at the moment, which I'm sure that Renata is going to talk extensively about, is the illusion of choice. That, in fact, you can be any kind of woman you like, that you can choose which aspects of these femininity that you will adhere to uh, and which you will not. And I think that one of the things that's difficult for us to understand, one of the questions I'd like to put on the table for tonight, is the question of what is happening to sexuality and to sexual identities in the contemporary moment? Are we seeing a, a big change um, in the way in which those identities are connected to major institutions like the family, like the state, like medicine, uh, like education indeed? Um, or are we actually seeing a reinforcement of the workings of those institutions, but in a sense, uh, via the back door. And that's one, one question I'd like to talk about. Now, what that connects to, of course, is a question, a broader question about whether or not the mechanisms that ensure sexual difference, that is, the mechanisms that ensure the difference between what it means to be feminine and what it means to be masculine, have shifted. In other words, have the institutions which produce boys and girls in our society changed in some kind of way? Or are we simply seeing um, a kind of chimera of change, a way in which change appears to be there but is actually not taking place? Now, I think that one of the things we have to be aware of, of course, is that, in a sense, we are living through an era, and perhaps it's not un, uh, unique in historical terms, but an era of what we might call girl power. There is a certain kind of redefinition of female citizenship, of what it means to be a woman in a contemporary society. And these new <coughs> female citizens are, I think, new sexual citizens, as I have uh, suggested, and they're also new consumer citizens. And one of the things that ha is happening, and not surprisingly, is that sexuality is changing as configurations of power change, and in particular, as new forms of, and patterns of consumption, new ways of commodifying sexuality. Uh, emerge. So, for example, um, I don't know how any of you feel about the fact that um, pole dancing equipment for home use is on sale in Selfridges in the section for pre-teen and teenage fashion, but I feel slightly uncomfortable about this, and I don't know, as a long-time uh, feminist uh, and a social anthropologist, exactly how I should be responding to this. Now, there is a sense in which when I raise, raise this issue, people often say, ah, well, you know, uh, it's important not to be censorious, right? It's important not to be judgmental. These are ways in which sexuality is becoming part of a culture of entertainment and leisure. 
this is a contemporary development. It's the ways in which sexuality is reforming its relationship with popular culture. Um, and uh, it's not appropriate, in a sense, to, to, to see these uh, forms of leisure as um, uh, forms of uh, patriarchal control or indeed covert forms of male violence against women as an older feminist analysis would have done. Um, now, one of the interesting things, of course, about uh, femininity is that it's always a kind of staging. It's always a kind of fan fantasy or phantasmatic relationship to social institutions and to the social and, and to the symbolic. But we do have, I think, to look at this question in some detail of how we are to understand what's happening, particularly with those aspects of femininity which come under the label of the phallic girl. Now, one of the interesting things about the phallic girl is that in her, in her assertiveness, in her um, drinking, in her engagement with violence, in her, in a sense, what some have called mimicry of what is masculine, she, in a way, asserts equality with men. She asserts that she has become equal uh, with her male counterparts. Um, she's encouraged, of course, to think of sex as a kind of light-hearted pleasure, a kind of recreation, a sort of um, sporting activity for which there will be various re rewards, various uh, accrual of status. So that we have to see the uh, enjoyment of lap dancing, the uh, continuation of heavy drinking and smoking against more general trends in society, which are, of course, encouraging people to drink less, not to smoke at all. Um, the carrying and using of knives, the overt symbols of that uh, engagement with masculinity um, as, I think, something which forces us to rethink some of our assumptions about the linkage between femininity and passivity, masculinity and violence and so on and so forth. But we also have to ask, is there any critique of masculinity implied in this kind of assertion of masculinity? Or what kind of masculinity is it that this phallic girl um, desires? One of the interesting questions here, of course, with the phallic girl is that we now have a um, uh, quite a body of evidence for sociological work now in a number of European countries for young women between the ages of 13 and 25. And what that evidence shows is that an increasing number of young women have had sexual relationships of varying kinds with other young women but in doing so, they make no statement or no claim about any shift in their sexual identity. In other words, they do specifically, and in fact, most of these young women when asked about this behavior say, I, you know, this is just entertainment. I am not a lesbian. In other words, they take the Amy Winehouse uh, uh, view of this activity. And this, in a sense, is about a question, psychoanalytic question is, you know, is there some shift here in object choice? What is actually going on? Now, object choice, of course, being absolutely crucial, in, particularly in uh, older versions of psychoanalytic theory, to the question of uh, sexual difference itself uh, and to the question of sexual identity. Now, how am I doing on time, Derek? I think you've had it. I've had it? Okay. Well, let me... Um, no, no, come back, but I mean... No, 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 no
maybe with this phallic girl, and I think we might want to deconstruct the notion of the phallic girl quite a lot as we have a discussion during the evening, but, but this notion of this kind of or character and structure of a certain kind of femininity, in a sense, it looks as though the, the sexual relations, in whatever form they take, that these young women have with other women, is in part about this grasping for masculinity. They, they, the relation to those other girls is, you know, I can have girls too. Now, this makes it very interesting if you contrast the Amy Winehouse view with the Julie Birchill view, because Julie Birchill, who, of course, is rather older than me, uh, went on record as saying... Um, I've wanted to be many things in my life. I have wanted to be a lesbian, a Jew, and a horse at different times. <laughs> but I've never, ever wanted to be a man. Okay. Um, now, I think I'll stop there, and then we can pick up. <laughs> I'm going to move close to the mic. I'm sorry. Um, thank you, Henrietta. It's quite um, a lot I want to take up, but oh. I, I shan't because I, I'll do it at the end or, or when we have a conversation um, all together. I, I suppose it's quite interesting that it's ended up that there are three women who are actually speaking. I know, Derek, you're providing a kind of masculine presence. And I very sad that Darren isn't here, but I'm also very heartened that this is not an audience only of women, because actually something shifted, but it isn't, because you could have had the quest for modern erotics and had an entirely female audience, whether they were feminine or not is the question. <laughs> so what do I want to say? I'm going to talk only from a clinical perspective, just at the beginning, because I am, after all, a, a psychoanalyst, and I'm as I'm listening to Henrietta, I'm thinking, well, what has changed over 30 years of being in the consulting room? And something has changed radically with young women. But I will talk about that very briefly at the end. I wasn't going to mention it at all, but because of what you're raising, I shall. But what I'm, because time is very short, I thought I would just focus on something very, very small, which is, what I hear about people's longings and desires inside of the consulting room. And what I hear is that the longing for intimacy is alive and well. It's a very strong desire. And where do they find it and where do they seek it, the people that I see? They find it in sexual relationships and they find it in friendships. They seek it in sexual relationships and they seek it in friendships. Okay, what's the next question? What do people in the consulting room complain about? Because you don't come in if you're terrifically happy. <laughs> what is their malaise? Whether they come in as individuals or whether they come in as a couple, what do they come in with? Well, not all of them. But an awful lot of them come in with, from the point of view of tonight's topic, they come in with a malaise about the sustainability of an erotic within a long-term relationship. So that's what I'm going to focus on very briefly here. So think of the word sustainability and think of long-term relationships. So 
What is desired and breached does not always endure. And I'm repeating to you again the fact that there are people in my practice who actually have very sustainable sexual long-term relationships, but they're not talking about that. They're talking about other kinds of conflicts. But they are a minority. Okay? So the large number of people who come in here talking about all sorts of things about intimacy end up with something around sexual intimacy being problematic if they're in a long-term relationship. And shockingly for them, many people in long-term relationships experience themselves to be in an essentially celibate relationship, but which has all the markings of a sexually um, faithful relationship. So it's got jealousy, it's got attachment, <coughs> it's got identity, it's got everything that you'd associate with being in a private, intimate sexual relationship, except sex. Okay? So how can we understand this? Is it because the people in the couple no longer fancy one another? Is it because, I think Darian might argue this, but he's not here, <laughs> that desire is always not what you have, that desire dies in a sense? Is it, or is it because in long-term relationships, people take up transferences, which I'll talk about in a second, and familiarities that come from previous intimate relationships, which mean that you can't actually do what you could do in the beginning of a relationship because of who that person has now become for you. So let me try and answer those three questions. So the first question was, is it because they don't fancy each other anymore? Well, from my experience, from the people that I see in therapy, they do fancy the lovers that they're not sleeping with. But Often the arousal and the thoughts occur when they can't actually do it. So this pains them. You know, they're at work, they think, oh, I have a wonderful weekend, it'll be great, I'll get home, you know, maybe I'll get stoned, maybe I'll do this, we'll have great sex. Mm -hmm. But they can have the thought when they're not in the circumstance of being able to do it. So they have the longings, which is probably quite an important thing to hold on to, but not the capacity to follow through. So does that bring me to the second question? I think it is. Is this because desire dies, or is it because desire has become problematic? And I would say it's because desire has become problematic. It gets cut off, gets repressed, perhaps becomes overwhelming. Why do I say that? <coughs> because to go to the third question, is it because people in long-term relationships take up transferences and a transference means that you can't end up sleeping with your parent, which I'll discuss, mm. I would probably say yes. So, in a long-term relationship, there is a capacity for two people to merge psychically. That's what brings people together in the first place. It's and what makes intimacy possible, the connection and the absorbing of the other into the self, which creates a new connection, is what we commonly call being in love. We might call it being infatuated, but it's be, you know, being in love. That's what culture means by that. We expand ourselves 
we change ourselves, our insides get all screwed around, we think about ourselves in a different kind of way, we have a whole different relationship to ourselves and an other. It's, it's momentous. It's, it's really momentous. That's why we can all cry at those meetings when people meet. It's psychically enormously significant. We take someone else into ourselves, it changes our dependencies, our attachments, and our sense of self. But at the same time as it does that, it bounces us into patterns of attachment and intimacy which we might know or can have known from intimacy, in which there's a developmental struggle from being a baby who is necessarily merged with its caregiver to developing to somebody who is attached to but separate from that, that caregiver. So we bring what we know of intimacy from our first relation, from our first experience of intimate relationship. And for everybody, I think, in this room, <coughs> our first love affair will have been with the person who raised us, whether that's our mother, our nanny, our granny, a mother substitute, the dad, Whoever was the fr that is where we first know what we call love. It was, if it was a violent relationship, that is what love will mean to us. That is what attachment will mean to us. Now, if I'm really speaking schematically and very fast, so I'm sorry, we'll have to go back over this if necessary. But if that was a very merged relationship for all sorts of aspects of women's psychology, from the mother's point of view, that she needed to keep that developing baby very close and part of her identity, it will shape other intimacies. And one of the problems that will emerge around erotic is that while merger is an aspect of erotic in the beginning of the relationship, as I said, it's often anathema as the relationship continues. Because the couple, after a period of merger, if you can't use that merger to become two separate attached people, you then are actually only potentially making love or having a masturbatory relationship. You, there is no other there to have a relationship with. So having sex with someone who is not other is not very interesting. So when you're away from them, you know, at work, you can think, God, this could be really lovely. Or if you're in the middle of a breakup when they're about to become an other separate person, sex can be incredibly wild and exciting. But when you're together, you may not actually be able to do it. So, not having sexual intimacy in the context of a couple actually could be a way of keeping a certain kind of space between two people. It's a way of being not too intimate. I know that sounds paradoxical, but it's a thought I'd like to leave. It's a way of managing a space where there isn't space. Because otherwise, if you had sex, you'd feel too close. Okay? One more minute. Girl power, these things, these are responses to you. Quickly. Henrietta asked me to raise the issue of the fairy shop. I was in, in, in a local fairy shop, a local little girl shop in Hampstead, um, looking for a present for the girls. And I saw, in, I saw fairies and little cards which were all about sex for like three, four, and five-year-olds. So what that's made me think is that it's not so different than the pole dancing. Mm. It's that sex is now becoming a kind of commodity for girls. It's becoming not so much 
an integrated aspect of self, which I'm not sure it ever was in our recent period. I think that's part of the difficulty. But a kind of false erotic is being offered, which is what I think you're talking about, in which sex becomes a kind of add-on rather than an integrated aspect of self. And it's something girls can do, but it isn't something that they can feel as being integral to who they are. And I think we could look at that historically from, you know, they're a generation whose mums weren't quite liberated, but who wanted them to have things, and therefore certain things are passed on unconsciously about pro prohibitions around sexuality, and therefore the commercial world comes in to, to do something very different. I'm going to stop there. Oh, I want to say something about the lesbian activity of, of, mm. of girls, mm -hmm. teenage girls. I don't think it's any different than my day. In my day, we called it doctor and nurse. We held in our mind, it is very different mm. in one sense. The activity isn't different. We called it doctor and nurse to maintain the masculine and feminine roles. Mm. Now, it is perfectly acceptable for girls to do that without having to call it doctor and nurse. Of course, there are female doctors now, so it isn't quite so mm. odd. Or it's perfectly okay to have that designation of a love, being a lesbian until graduation, which is a very familiar story in North America. Mm. Right? So these kind of categories are being changed. The activities may not be so actually different. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to stop there so that Renata can Thank you. I feel a little bit bad that I'm showing um, sort of my shoulders to kind of a portion of the audience. Um, I would prefer to listen to both of you uh, continuing talking um, about this issue, issues because what psychoanalysis at LSE actually is trying to bring together is precisely the knowledge that comes, let's say, from therapy and psychoanalysis from the side of practitioners and sort of the knowledge that this institution uh, is trying to sort of breed, which means social science. Um, Freud um, was quite keen in understanding the link between the civilization and the pains of people, which is why he, his point was that the malaise in civilization always influences the malaise of individuals and vice versa. And that's precisely sort of what I think we are trying to bring together so continuing with what both Susie and Henrietta were saying, I will make a couple of observations that I think are pertinent for understanding of what is changing in post-industrial society, in so-called late capitalism, in the way people relate to each other and in the way they shape their love lives. Um, I was recently in America, and you know, America is sort of always sort of like a couple of years ahead of us, I think. Like you know, after something happens in America, usually something happens very similar on the cultural domain in Britain, and then the rest of Europe follows. So in a New York bookstore, um, I saw a book entitled All About Me. So, you know, thinking about the self in society, I looked in the, into the book and it was almost empty. <laughs> and, and I sort of really looked page after page and it was really an empty book. So it's a bestseller. Um, so, and you know, I realized that this book is encouraging me to write a book about myself. So the only part of the book where there were some texts were sort of pointers of where you were supposed to write out your life plan, your desires, your 
the structure of how you want to live and you know management plan and you know your life is like a business so you had some kind of a financial section desire section and, and so on I didn't I didn't buy the book you know but a lot of other people did but then I realized you know when I was sort of traveling around New York and you know in in London I started collecting logos around me you know uh, which were encouraging me become yourself only a better one you know that was like a logo on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine you know then uh, life book now that was uh, last minute.com you know I almost I almost booked my life but uh, then on the cover of Eve magazine in New York was me myself and I and you know then I went to take money out of a machine and it said your choice your chase and you know basically even in, in former you know communist societies where I come from we have exactly the same logo it's your voice that's like a mobile phone ad advertising and you know be yourself of course it's used for everything from selling beer uh, to selling again mobile phones in Eastern Europe and of course when I looked in the uh, list in New York Times sort of bestseller non-fiction books I was shocked that what this list is offering is sort of advice on sort of come how to become yourself these are sort of like the best-selling books and the usually mm -hmm. title is the secret you know which will sort of help you to figure out how to master your life with your rational thoughts and then you have change your thought change yourself that was another bestseller uh, you the owner's manual now when I, when I became a mother one of my friends sent me the book the owner's manual for your baby and you know it was quite useful I must say uh, and then you know another book was now discover your strengths and then heaven is real and on the internet site I discovered that there is an internet site which for $29.99 gives you an insight into the real you they <laughs> sent you that sent you a hundred page long report <laughs> onto the I was almost <laughs> tempted by that now of course you have all this idea about making also a choice of the body the total body makeover and in basically the, in all domains of our private and public lives we are getting the impression that we can make a rational choice and a plan on how to find the most desirable object which would be our own life so our life is like an art object it's an enterprise but primarily is perceived as something we have an absolute power about. Now, Jacques Lacan, French psychoanalyst, in 71 gave a lecture in Milan where he was thinking what's happening really with the subject in capitalism. And Lacan's idea was that capitalism is a system which starts functioning extremely quickly. It sort of starts speeding up. Now, it's not only that it produces more and more, but it also, you know, just creates an incredible speed. And his idea was that at some point capitalism creates an illusion that the proletarian slave has turned into a master of his or her own life. And that happens precisely when the proletarian slave becomes addressed as a free consumer. Now, that change, you know, from, let's say, a subject from being like you know, a proletarian into a free consumer, I think, really happened. And the second point that Lacan makes is that capitalism also creates a push to what he calls jouissance. 
the enjoyment. That the enjoyment for this subject, the free consumer, the master of his life, is supposed to be boundless, without limits. And that enjoyment is highly accessible for everyone. Now, Lacan's point is also that this subject, you know, in some strange way, the free consumer takes his own life as a particular object of consumption, which we do see precisely with what I was saying, become yourself only a better one or create your ideal life. And then Lacan makes a pessimistic conclusion that this, you know, free consumer at some point starts consuming him or herself. And in some way, we have an increase of, you know, even a kind of real forms of self-consumption, self like anorexia, bulimia, uh, addictions, and, you know, workaholism, whatever, all kinds of illnesses which actually we do observe on the rise in today's society. Now, uh, going to the question of sexuality, the, this ideology of choice has created an illusion that matters of sexuality and love are also a matter of choice. Now, when you look at self-help books about love, they pretty much the top-selling books have to do with trying to figure out how to control the desire of the other. I once Googled, you know, issue of love, and pretty much I found numerous top-selling books on how to love oneself. And the workbook, uh, which gives you step-by-step -step guides to love yourself. As we know, with today's ideology, love is primarily supposed to be self-love. One cannot love another when, if one doesn't love oneself. Now, when we sort of look at the books about love for another, they, a lot of them have to do with the question, how can I control the desire of the other? How can I make myself desirable by the other? How can I prevent that the other will not desire me? How can I, in some way, manipulate the other? You know, many steps, guides on, you know, sort of how to prevent that your husband won't, whatever, cheat with the secretary, and so on. And basically, you know, the idea is that there is a possibility of control. I'll, I'll come back to this uh, issue of control, but staying a little bit with the idea of choice, I would like to point another phenomenon which uh, very much is talked about in America, and that's the idea of hooking up. Now, um, in American college life, and I guess to a, to a point also here, the idea of hooking up has replaced the idea of dating. So numerous studies have been published about the new sex lives of, of American students, which have to do with very brief encounters, you know, encounters which don't have any planning and also have no promise, no commitment as part of it. And, you know, to a point, these encounters are mostly sexual. Now, of course, these encounters uh, happen usually when a group of students would go socializing, you know, a hookup will happen, you know, sort of a couple will tem temporarily be formed for just that night and, you know, nothing, no promises, no further plans will be part of it. Now, hooking up appears uh, primarily, you know, a way of relate to another in times of choice. People perceive it actually as a possibility to learn about choice. You know, they are too busy studying and they want to sort of see what's out there. They don't want to make, you know, any long-term relationship commitments, which is why hooking up especially allows a certain, you know, bodily, physical enjoyment. It is we can see this resource, you know, kind of a push 
to enjoyment as part of it, but of course there is no space for love. Or you know, there is you know, some space, of course, for desire, for longing, but one is not allowed in a way to um, sort of focus with it, which is why hooking up presents also some kind of an illusion for women that they are becoming truly equal to men. Uh, since a lot of college girls are saying that with the idea of hooking up, now they can treat men as disposable objects in a similar way as they have been treated before. Now, when I looked a little bit at sociological studies of hooking up, I was quite surprised how much behind the idea of freedom, choice, and liberation, there are old, old kinds of ideas of actually making yourself quite unavailable when you are hoping to create a long-term attachments, which is why girls, when they really hope you know, to incite desire on the side <coughs> of a potential partner, they will actually not sleep with him and would follow sort of the old rules of keeping a certain distance in order to increase desire on the other side. Now, what hooking up allows in a strange way is also sort of perceiving the other as some kind of a disposable object and not feeling regret or, respo or responsibility for it, which is why in the studies I read, people actually after the hookup don't want to sleep throughout the night with the partner. Most of the research showed that hookup happens under a lot of the influence of the alcohol. So they call it uh, liquid lubrication <laughs> is required for you know, the hookup to happen and then you, know, you don't stay over which is why primarily because in the morning you don't want to even look at the face of someone you sort of picked. You don't want to be observed by others with a particular person whom you might have picked. And especially you don't want to sort of deal with your own consciousness, you know, what was I doing? Which is why they said that what hookup allows is, you know, saying to oneself, oh, I was drunk, I didn't know what I was doing. So that kind of a, you can act as if it never happened. Now, this kind of relationship, it happens, it acts as if it never happens, are very much part also of internet relationships. Um, I observed, you know, a lot of debate in America about internet bullying among, among teenagers especially, and the debate was about that when you write, uh, you know, an attack in the internet to another person, quite often when you push the send button, you feel as if you're not responsible for it. You don't see it out of sight, out of mind, out of responsibility. As if you are not responsible for it and you are also not thinking about another who gets it. So you are sort of in a kind of a solitary state when you are you know, doing the internet uh, connections, which also in some way we can say hook up is. It's sort of like a <coughs> masturbatory enjoyment in sexuality where another is just a tool, a transitional object you know, which you perceive you can rationally use to your advantage. So the real question, of course, is what is happening with the desire in today's society? And, you know, as Henrietta very interestingly pointed out, in this context we have to ask what has actually happened also with old type of sort of established rules in institutions that are related to love. And here I was surprised to learn how many girls who actually enjoy uh, hookup or pretend to enjoy or try to enjoy hookup culture, how many of them really want to get married? And there was a recent survey done in the Appetite magazine, and I don't know, I've never read it, but it supposedly, supposedly uh, has to do with uh, anorexia and bulimia. So this Appetite uh, journal 
did a survey of almost 300 young women in their mid-20s uh, who were about to get married in sort of six months' time. And what they figured out was that about 80% of these girls tried to lose up to 20 pounds of their weight. And about 20% rest the percent, uh, uh, of these girls tried to at least maintain their weight. So the discussion then emerged about what is, what is this obsession with losing the weight before uh, getting married. Now the answer of the researcher was that people take their bodies as a project. And one of the times you want this project to be the most successful is on your wedding day. So it is on the wedding day you have to have, for that brief moment, the ideal body in which you want to sort of see yourself. Now what happens after the wedding, you know, it doesn't really matter <laughs> if you get divorced or whatever, you know, but as a result of this obsession with the wedding in America, they created even a sort of like a mock film, Bridezilla. Now, in <laughs> the obsession of looking perfect in the wedding, uh, it's also interesting to observe the relationship that dress, uh, that people uh, show to the dress. The obsession with dress, of course, goes to the point of girls buying far too small dress and trying to sort of squeeze into it in the couple of weeks they still have. And at the time of the wedding, having an enormous anger uh, um, towards the dresses they were picked for the bridesmaids. So quite often the jealousy, you know, hatred, uh, anxieties, whatever, are related to this particular thingy, which is dress. Now, I will conclude with uh, just a couple of pointers. Uh, hookup culture, I think, very much shows that, you know, that we lived in times of very much of an illusion of freedom and also sort of an illusion that so much has actually changed in regards to the way people desire relationships. It might be a helpful tool for the girls to perceive themselves as sort of equal to boys, but the suffering, what Susie was talking about, the longing for a relationship is very much behind it. Hookup culture also increases the feeling of anxiety. Uh, it does not diminish it. Anxiety in regard to desire of the other, one's own desire. Anxiety also in regard to what love is. Love is from Jacques Lacan's work on, we know very much linked to love and you know, any question of desire always involves anxiety. Now, in conclusion, I would like to mention the new research on love, which has been done on the sort of interlink between psychoanalysis and computer sciences. Um, Shirley Turkle, who used to write on Lacan, is now working a lot on the machines, robots, internet, and so on. And uh, uh, not too long ago, she was asked on the internet site edge.org um, among gru the group of scientists, um, she was asked what she had changed her thought about, you know, what, what kind of a belief she thought she had she changed in the last years. And her answer was that she used to think that people cannot form, um, you know, emotional relationships to machines, and now she thinks they can. So her research pointed out that people, when they deal with some machines, even, you know, simple computers, very quickly they take these machines sort of like a live method. They get very angry at them, they shout at them, and so on. Now with the robots, 
with, when they figured out little toys which res respond to you, like you know the, the Tamagotchi and so on, very crucial emotional relationships uh, developed between machines and humans. But now the scientists are trying to figure out robots which would maybe take care of old people so that you know, sort of middle-aged people will be more free to enjoy hookup or whatever, <laughs> or you know, take up, uh, take uh, you know, care of the babies, and that's quite useful. Uh, and you know, she figured out that when this new robots machine show a little bit of love and attention back to the human, the human is extremely happy. And actually, some research showed that you know, the robots who you know ask you how you're doing, show you some love and compliments and so on, become perfect partners for the humans. <laughs> so I will, you know, end with this uh, uh, optimistic view that I think that <laughs> in the future we might have quite enjoyable relationship with the robots. <laughs> um, we've only got about, perhaps about 10, 12 minutes before opening up um, to questions from the floor. So maybe, I don't know if you want to do respond to one another, but that's quite briefly. If that's, uh, I think one of the questions that we should perhaps return to is this question of what is happening to desire, whether there's a, a shift in desire. I mean, you didn't say anything, Susie, in your, in your comments about um, how it is that you propose people might solve this problem of not having any sex in their long-term relationships. And one of the things that's, I think, quite important is I that... I only had 10 minutes. Yeah, you only had otherwise, 10 minutes. Otherwise, oh, you would have done. would have solved it. You would have solved it completely. Yeah, cool. Completely. Oh, well, that would be great. I'm sure the audience would love to hear the answer to that, actually. <laughs> but, the, um, but, the, but I think one of the, thing, one of the, one of the issues is, is, is there something, is there, is there some fundamental kind of change taking place in sexual relationships? And you seem to be suggesting no in your doctor and nurse answer to me. Well... I think yes and no, because I don't think we knew what was going on several generations before. Because I think the emotional dependency dynamic and the sexual dynamic in established relationships were hidden. They were veiled by economic arrangements and by perceptions of masculinity and femininity. So I think what's happened in the last 40 years is that we've exposed... Women have begun to speak, and then men have begun to speak in mm. a different kind of way. <coughs> I, I don't mean this being to do with heterosexual relations, because I think it's both true within people who are bisexual, heterosexual, or mm. um, homosexual, but a new kind of voice or articulation about desire, about the erotic, it, it means that we know, we're know learning something. So it is both, we don't know how new it is, but mm. we know that women's sense that they ought to be entitled is changed mm. at a kind of conscious level. Whether unconsciously they feel entitled, mm. I would say, is, is very much more complicated. Does that make any sense to you? Well, it does, except that I would, I would say that your very answer suggests that, that, that something has changed. Because if, if we... Renata mentioned Freud. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what Freud famously said or asked is what can we turn sex into his answer to that was culture or civilization or society because it's what we give up in that primary sexual relationship that what we sublimate that is at the basis of what can be done later in culturally speaking so as these major institutions shift and change particularly the family and others then desire 
and sexual relationships and sexual identities move out into other kinds of spheres which they were not inhabiting in quite the same way before. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that interaction, since a sexual relationship is about establishing a relationship with others, those interactions shift and change. Yeah, I, yes, I, I, absolutely. I, I mean, the problem is your response sends me in a whole other direction, mm. which is to say that contemporary psychoanalysts don't necessarily go that sex is what's driving it. Mm. They, they have a different conception of what's driving, which mm. doesn't mean that longings and desire mm. aren't there. And I think Renata's example of what gets projected onto the machine, mm. what gets wanted, from the machine is all to do with desire. But I'm not sure we would say that's to do with sexuality. Mm-hmm. We might say it's to do with recognition, actually finding a way to find that you know what the pages are in the book because the, the book of me or whatever it's called, because those are constituents of, of self rather than outside things that you have to borrow. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think there's a whole, what this raises is a whole set of other things. If we're literally talking about sexual desire, Mm -hmm. Um, then I think there is a new kind of permission to feel desire, but there may not be a new kind of psychic possibility of experiencing it and feeling okay about it, Mm -hmm. whether you're female or male, Mm -hmm. masculine. Mm -hmm. That's where I think it gets to be much more problematic in that, you know, are, are we on our way to some very fine place? I don't think so. Mm. Um, is it, are things more interesting for younger people sexually? Perhaps there's an exuberance, there's more possibility, but there's also terrorizing fear around sex as this commodity that people seem to have to have to produce, rather mm. sex as a form of, maybe call me old fashioned, but as a form of expression in an intimate relationship. Mm. Even if the intimate relationship is, you know, ships that pass in the night, you can mm. have an intimacy there. Mm. But I'm not sure that expressiveness is kind of on the table. It's m- a much more self-referential, as you were mm. suggesting. Yeah, I, I would also answer in the way that you uh, started that yes and no, there is a change in, in, in the way desire operates. No would be going back to um, Freud in his group psychology. He says that whenever cultural structures uh, change, uh, especially sort of uh, structures of family life or or courtship, uh, sort of, you know, the rituals, uh, people are very quick to invent new types of prohibitions. So when old prohibitions cease to exist, they invent new prohibitions in order to keep desire alive. Now, that goes also hand in hand with Lacan's idea that desire always requires a prohibition. So something has to be in some way off limit in order to desire is alive. Now, celibacy or new terms to celibacy, you know, obviously are attempts to create uh, prohibitions. Uh, and, you know, even inventing new rules of dating or whatever are all sorts of new types of prohibitions. Where I see um, that there has been change, I think there has been quite a change uh, on the level of reproduction, um, quite often, you know, a, a big question for a woman would be, shall I have a child or not? And that's usually a question about desire. You know? When I have that question, quite often, I already have a desire, you know. Um, now, quite often now, Lacanian psychoanalysts are encountering in their uh, practice uh, a problem of women who demand a child. 
who would sort of claim, you know, you know, it is my right to have a child and someone is preventing it, a partner or medicine hasn't advanced or, uh, or whatever. And behind this, we can see, you know, quite, a, quite an important change. Now, it is troubling when we are dealing with the question, was I a desire? Did my parents really want me or whatever, which is, you know, kind of a lifelong question which usually we suffer with. But, you know, I think it's quite a different thing to deal with how was I demanded or why was I demanded or as what kind of an object was I demanded. And behind this logic of demand, one can observe quite often, you know, the types of kind of a non-triggered psychosis or, you know, other psychoanalysts would call it borderline or whatever, where I think the question of desire uh, uh, does not exist in the same way as with the neurotic uh, type of suffering. And in regards to sort of Another change uh, of desire, which is not that much of a change, I would say that, you know, as consumers, we very much, you know, search for ever new ways of prohibitions. And recently I read an article about Tokyo having new types of stores which sell, like, really desirable objects, like clothes or whatever, but you don't know where those stores are. You know that people buy things, but, you know, they are sort of on the outskirts. You figure out where the stores are, you go there, and you don't know when they are open. You wait for hours, TVs come and, you know, they shoot these people waiting in rain for five hours or whatever. Then the store suddenly opens and when people come in and want an object, the salesperson says, no, I'm not selling it to you. <laughs> I'm selling it to this guy, but not to you. You know, people love it. It's sort of like, I think, a new enjoyment in prohibition, a self-imposed prohibition, precisely at times of sort of, you know, tyranny of choice or, or of too much choice. Yeah, just before we open it up, I just wanted to uh, add one brief comment, which, which may be worth um, thinking about in terms of some of these, these questions. Um, while you were speaking, I was thinking about the, the recent Barbican show mm. on sexuality and sex. And um, the experience of going and, and looking at you know, a whole series of artifacts to do with sex and different activities that people have been clearly doing for a long, long time. And um, feeling initially that there's something completely banal about this. And then feeling a little bit disappointed that other people have been having sex for such a long time. What I thought was transgressive in my own sphere of pleasure has clearly been happening as long as there's human beings. And this funny vacillation between, on the one hand, saying, oh, here's another picture of sex, and this kind of banality on the one hand, and on the other hand, the fact that it can still shock that at some point, even what prescribes what's viable to put in that show, even in our contemporary, whatever, liberated society, there's certain limits of things that can't be shown there. And it just made me think that for a lot of the time when one discusses issues of the changes that are happening to sexuality or desire, one seemingly does that almost inevitably from a kind of position on the Foucauldian problematic, that sexuality must be located in this historical discursive location, and that's pretty much what it is at some level. And maybe something of a psychoanalytic riposte to that is to say that there's something about this domain of human activity, in as much as it occurs in society and culture, which seem to generate certain regular features, even if it is at very different times and very different places. So in response to the question, is desire changing? Is sexuality changing? Yes, indeed, there's a whole series of different um, social and cultural factors which are playing a part. But is there not something about sexuality itself in as much as it happens in a cultural location that does generate certain similar regular features, one of which is some kind of transgression, one of which is taboo, one of which is a, what is too extreme to be seen in a show like that? And of course, another one is the, the, the difficulty of avoiding taking on a sexual position relative to um, sex. 
So just a thought, I mean, I don't know whether that's worth thinking about, that I think the exhibition was, is a kind of useful reference point for some of it. Anyways, questions from the floor? Just, there's some roving mics, so it's a good idea just to wait until you actually get the microphone, and then just could you actually speak right into the microphone when you ask your question, please? Just so that we can, people leave. Okay. Uh, Dr. Orbach, I'd really appreciate it if you could uh, comment on the recent rise in um, swing culture, swingers, um, open relationships, open marriages. Um, Dr. Moore, I'd like you to comment on um, the recent uprise up in uh, game theory regarding relationships and and the discourse that's around that. Or um, for example, Ariane Levy wrote a book recently uh, entitled Female Chauvinist Pig, in which she dissected the discourse around uh, lesbian relationships and found a lot of appropriation of boys, spelled B-O-I-S. And uh, Renata, I'd like to ask you to comment on, um, given the illusions that you talk about, what now does that mean for consent in the law? I'm too bloody ignorant to know about swings, swing open marriages. Open marriages, you don't know any. I mean, I I don't, I I know about jogging sites, I know about um, people having affairs, but I don't, I would say that from my clinical experience, my friendship circles, um, people I know, God, people are very uptight. Nobody has open marriages like they had in the 60s and 70s. That's kind of not something I know about. So I, I can't comment on it. I'm really sorry. Okay, well, just tell me what the, what the argument about game theory is in relation to these. I think that <clears throat> perhaps I, this is partly my fault because perhaps I didn't make it clear enough at the beginning that, that in talking about femininity and masculinity I'm not necessarily talking about men and women or let, shall we say that femininity and masculinity don't map onto the male and the female in, 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 a, in any kind of fixed, necessarily fixed or pre-known way, right? Um, and obviously we could have talked this evening and didn't talk about the ways in which men appropriate aspects of femininity, right? And how femininity is an important aspect of being a man in certain kinds of contexts, right? Or, or actions and behaviors and aspirations and desires, um, which we would think of as perhaps being characteristically feminine are important aspects of being a successful man, as in, say, fatherhood, 
for example. Right? So the, but I think what was important about what I was talking about was the, the way in which for the young women who are referred to in this new research work, and one of the questions is who exactly are they? Because what we didn't talk about and haven't done sufficiently yet this evening are issues to do with uh, race and class and uh, geographical location and so on. But exactly who these young women are is that part of what they are uh, perhaps aspiring to is, is to transcend the very character of sexual difference itself, to have it all, right? To have the feminine and the masculine, to not be marked by sexual difference in the way that generations before them were, right? It, and this, of course, is an impossibility in some sense, but a very understandable set of aspirations and desires. And I think it arises precisely at a moment when sexuality becomes connected to consumerism and consumer choice, where sexuality is part of that, right? where every aspect of sexuality is on show. Now, clearly, when we, we, when we think about that, we're not just talking about sexuality in the same way as we'd be talking about um, you know, what kind of muesli do you buy, right? Um, but the, 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 it, it, it's, as Renata says, the question is, what does this chimera of choice, what is it really speaking about? And in a sense, it's speaking, for me, it's still speaking about the kind of the impossibility of, of, of sex, the fact that a sexual identity is, even at its most successful, a kind of failure, because it's not, in a sense, a pure identity, right? So that, you know, when you have an identity as a woman, that is not, the, there's not one complete success in that. There are many, many different kinds of aspects to it, right? So I think that I, you know, I was, should have been more careful, and it's my fault that I wasn't more careful at the beginning about how I actually see the relationship between masculinity and femininity and men and women. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'll, I'll add to this. Um, you know, I, I loved in America the debates whether uh, Clinton is a man and Obama is a woman. Mm. And <laughs> they were quite serious debates in, in the newspapers, you know, and the idea of him being emasculated by his, his sort of a male type of a, uh, wife and also the debate whether he's black at all and whether maybe Bill Clinton is really more black than Obama. So that sort of shows that, you know, I would say psychoanalytic theory about the impossibility of identity, you know, uh, has some success, I would say. But going to the question about the game, and, and, and the game, I don't know, at least in America, it's like a hugely popular uh, dating book for, for men. And, you know, my students there told me uh, that it's about uh, an insult as a form of uh, success. So I, I haven't had the chance to look at the book, but supposedly if a man wants to really attract a woman, he's advised to make like an insult, to so say it like, oh, yeah, you're like really nice, but uh, I guess you have uh, sort of a new hair colorist. Uh, you know, the tone of your hair is uh, it's a bit kind of strange. And then you go. And then you, you are thinking that the woman will search to come back and ask you, like, what did you mean? What's wrong with my hair? You know, so to, like... In, and in, in, you will incite a certain a desire on her side to sort of almost like a, make an apology for herself and get like certainty about, about herself. Now, in regards to rules and, you know, other uh, manuals, I think they really have to do with the illusion that you can sort of use old, old types of prohibitions in a new feminist way. Even the writers of rules, they claim they are feminists. 
their gender equalities, but they know that gender equality brought with it a certain dissatisfaction in relationships and the impossibility, quite often, impossibility for powerful women, uh, successful women, to attract men, and which is why they sort of supposedly give them tools, which they say you sort of use occasionally and then abandon them. So the idea is that not you are identifying with the rules or prohibitions, but you perceive them as something outside. It's not like in the 50s or 60s where men, where women were following kind of rules that women sort of were learning from society, but now you don't identify with them. You just use them as something random, something you sort of, maybe you are even against it. About your question on consent and law, that's a, a very complicated thing. Uh, law, of course, tries to figure out, you know, how to, how to find, you know, a kind of a rational basis of the consent. We know with sexual harassment, sort of kind of an impossibility of law to figure out what is harassment, where is actually a consent, which might be as part of denial. You know, saying no behind might very much have sort of a yes, an unconscious yes or whatever. The question of consent in reproduction is a huge problem. You know, now with the new technologies, we have a lot of idea of, you know, how do we get consent? I don't know, recently in Israel, they had a court deciding that uh, grandparents have the right to a grandchild. The parents lost their son. Before he died, they were able to extract semen, and then the parents decided that because they lost their son, they nonetheless don't want to lose the possibility to have a grandchild, which is why they demanded the court, the court decision to use the sperm and sort of impregnate you know, a higher mother with the sperm. Now, court decided that that's okay because the right to be grandfather you know, or grandmother is sort of another kind of a form of human right there. Now, the question of was there was no consent at all. This boy who died never said he wanted to be a father, but the idea was that as part of their culture, consent was already part of it. Of course, he would have children. And of course, you know, here in Britain, I remember some time ago in, um, in Observer magazine, there was this article of a woman who is trying to find a co-parent with whom she said she will have divorce before marriage so that she will have clear rules about how they will together produce a child but they will never have any relationship. He will just be a partner of, you know, in parenting. And again, the idea was of a possibility of a total control. Again, a total control of desire of someone else, you know, another person who is involved obviously has his or her desire, a total rational control over one's own desires, and in some way a control of the child. It appears as if you can predict and plan an ideal child, which is why, you know, I, I think with consent and law, we're, we're getting more and more in troubled waters. Um, any other questions? Perhaps if we take two or three, uh, and then respond to those. Thank you. Um, going back to, I'm another one that would like to hear the sort of solution part, if you have a few more minutes. Um, I'm, I'm particularly fascinated about the idea, once you've gone past the situation where, the, as, you, as you put them, transferences have happened, can you untransfer? <laughs> and and um, w within that context, um, of the, um, the paradox, if one wants to, but transferences have occurred, then again, how do you rectify or how do you go back? And 
Well, I don't, I presume that was directed at me. Yeah. I don't think you can go back, although you're haunted by back, by history. The question is, can the two people dare to create their relationship as a kind of third position? That the relationship becomes a platform from which they both could exist, which holds them both rather than, and to talk a real shorthand, from having, instead of having the merged attachment, can they have a connected but autonomous attachment, if I can put it that, that way, connected attachment that allow, uh, uh, the term that Louise Eichenbaum and I have used is separated attachment, so that the relationship becomes the thing that provides the closeness for both of them or the feeling of security. And then from that, instead of having to bring in somebody else or have an affair, or they then can reinstitute the other. So what does that mean? In some relationships, you get a cha-cha. Okay? One person is not so interested and the other person is made to feel whether it's sexual or, or on an insecure basis. And then when the person who is not very available becomes available, the other person kind of retreats, right? So you have exactly the same space going on, which is why it's a cha-cha. Okay. But there's not a kind of democratic version of a cha-cha. It's only uh, a kind of I don't want to use the word like sadomasochistic, but it's a kind of, it has a cruelty associated with it. It doesn't recognize that the people need a certain space between each other, so maybe they both could take responsibility for the closeness and for the separation. So I think it's talking about daring to trust that the other is there for you while being able to, and using that piece of their love create a sense of security in you so that you then can see that the other is there as an other that you can relate to. Does that make enough sense? If not, I can refer you to various books I've written. <laughs> but, um, but it's kind of, does that give you a sort of picture of what I'm talking about? It sounds too mechanistic, but I do think it, it is about democratizing the emotional dependency within a relationship, which makes it possible for desire to be held by both people and actually to be to create something that is wonderful again without being polyamorous. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 They may have the to shout. <coughs> we'll just lean over and shout yeah. a little quicker. Thank you for noticing me. Um, you've talked a bit, uh, all the panelists talked a bit about changes in desire um, in kind of late capitalism. Um, and I was interested to know uh, how far the panelists think that this desire has shifted um, or is allowable differently along intersecting axes of class, race, um, and also disability. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I... <coughs> 
I can't exactly describe for you all the ways in which it has shifted uh, along those axes because it, it has shifted differentially, in, inevitably, because apart, apart from anything else, because of the relationship uh, of sexuality and the processes of subjectification through which sexual difference and, and uh, sexual identity are formed, there's the relationship of, of, of that to power, uh, which is extremely important. Um, and we could have talked about, of course, the various forms of global femininity uh, which are circulating in various global spaces and which are very well marked by differences of uh, um, <clears throat> access to economic resource and to economic power are extremely racialized and uh, increasingly now uh, connected to differential or different ideas about uh, people of different faith, for example, and aspiration. Uh, and I think that you can see that very, very dramatically when uh, in the discussions that have gone on about the scenes of torture in Abu Ghraib, uh, the discussion that's gone on about the Iraq war, um, the discussions that go on frequently um, about uh, parts of the world which are used as kinds of extractive resource bases uh, for um, people, communities or groups in, in, part, in other parts of the world who are able to... Um, use those spaces and people and places um, to gain a considerable amount of economic uh, and other forms of profit. So one can't, I think, talk about exactly how they've shifted in all of those, but what I would like to say very strongly is that insofar as we are talking, when we use a term like um, post-industrial or late capitalism, this is really a, a polite way of saying things that we would have said in a different language uh, before, Perhaps we would have used the word, word, you know, developed and developing or emerging economies or, or whatever. Um, and I think that, you know, here we have to be... Um, I've lost my train of thought because too, too, um, too roundabout a way of going through it. Anyway, what I wanted to say is that, the, is that, is that uh, it's important, I think, to recognise that there is, a great deal, there is a great deal of difference as to how those things have shifted in relationship to desire, but that this new idea that everything is a matter of consumer choice, that everything is a matter of a self-realization, that everything is a matter of a self-project, that everything is self-fashioning, that everything is possible, that kind of um, discourse for me is one which I tend to in interpret analytically as being an ideological discourse, and what it precisely does is to occlude... Uh, anybody who is on the edge of it, and that is anybody who is poor, anybody who is suffering discrimination, anybody who is suffering immiseration, they're just not, they are not included in that discourse of around, uh, around choice. And I, and I think that that is often extremely problematic. But can I just come in for two secs? Because I think one of the things that's very interesting if you have a teenage girl and you come from a nice middle class background, it's, or that's that's what you uh, think you propose or have offered, even if it's a left-wing radical um, family, is that there is a kind, and I'm going to use the word democratization again, there's a kind of democratization of Slappers, Essex girls, a different kind of form that never entered into, um, that's, you know, coming from one direction, it used to go in the other direction. There's, mm -hmm. there's something inviting, exciting, luring, possible for, 
for girls cross-class to pick up on class positions or forms of decoration and forms of self-revealing or that are very different now, mm. really, really different. I'm talking locally, I'm not mm. talking globally, mm. although I think there's a whole other story about mm. global bodies which, is, which we could talk about on another occasion. There is something very challenging because every girl now has to look gorgeous from the age of 10 or 11, right? Which was not an aspiration 20 or 30 years ago. You did that when you got to 18, 19, 20, 20, and you could even be a blue stocking. That is simply not a position anymore. And that isn't, of course it's driven by beauty terror and the beauty culture, but it's also something about that culture is entered in from different class influences than used to. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's worth thinking about. And, and that is the sad part of the hookup uh, culture, you know, precisely because the research I've read, it's, you know, women uh, are judged only by how they look. You know, in college, you know, men would be sort of judged by, you know, how smart they are, how good sportsmen they are, or whatever, you know, among the sort of youngsters from 18 to 22, but it would be for women who are the top beautiful girls. And among uh, many campuses, of course, there are more girls than men, and which means, you know, a huge competition about, you know, especially about the beauty. But I would say precisely in the hookup culture, you have also the uh, uh, idea of transgressing these boundaries, uh, not so much of class, but, you know, of experimenting w w in regard to race, uh, um, you know, gender identity and so on. But those experiments usually stop at the time when people are searching for, you know, marriage type of partner, which is why they would usually then go back to the usual, you know, finding someone from the same class or, or race and, and so on. So before the transgression appears just another kind of a, almost like a game and, uh, you know, experiment. question. It's so not my area that I, I, again, I don't feel I can comment, but it is also to do with visual culture and the intensity of visual culture and the kind of 
iconic figures who I, of, of presentation who you kind of don't know because they're the fourth generation or the tenth generation of somebody who was related to somebody who was on Big Brother or something like that. And a ki the kind of notion that you need to be seen and that that, ha that has infused something about what these girls' aspirations are, which is, of course, not to live in gospel. Well, gospel oak wouldn't be so bad, right? What are you talking about? It's to not live in the situations in which these other girls whose lives they're perhaps appropriating and colonizing at that moment you know, actually inhabit. So I, but it is, there is something about what is the function of the Victoria Beckham wannabes hmm. who convey something or all those one, all those magazines like Heat and all of those, which convey something about the, the underbelly that girls are trying to get into, that are trying. That, I mean, we need to understand it. I, I'm, I'm a long way from understanding. I just do think it's not all, all one way at this point in terms of particularly the kinds of forms of what I suppose femininity they afford would be called in, in your new language, in the language you guys use, not the language of psychoanalysts. <laughs> so thank you, but I, I don't know where to go with that. One last question, perhaps, we've got a few minutes. I've got a question, actually, as well. What about metrosexuality? I mean, talking about self-fashioning types of sexuality, what about metrosexuality? What is metrosexuality, actually? And, uh, you could be it. You could, you may I've, be been, the I've been trying for a long time. I don't think I've pulled it off if I don't know what it is. Um, but is this a position which is somehow more available to masculinity than femininity? Any thoughts? I think we, we, we would need uh, Darian Leader to say something about it. his famous line of... Um, why do women write more letters than they post is that when women goes, go shopping, they search for a dress that no one else is wearing. When men go shopping, they search for a dress that everyone else is wearing. And Not a dress. If, or, you know, sorry, a suit. <laughs> no, a metrosexual maybe is searching for a dress. And so uh, 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 <laughs> a question for our absent uh, member of the discussion would be whether something has changed here. And, you know, if something has changed, then we are probably experiencing a kind of a metrosexual turn. You know, if men are searching for a dress, no one else is wearing. Not dress, sorry, a suit. <laughs> an attire, then probably there is at least a change, an optimism of change. Well, I'm not sure about that, actually. I mean, again, I would return to this point about the desire to, to have it all. Um, you know, the new work done on the gay village in Manchester, for example, showing that a large number of those leisure spaces are inhabited on Friday and Saturday nights by people who, who self-identify as straight, right? And their whole, their, but what they are doing, in a sense, is wanting to partake of a particular way of uh, presenting sexuality, of self, of dressing, of leisure activity, which they associate with these spaces which are labeled as, as gay in some way or other. And that has become, that is a, definitely a difference. If you look at the, historically the way in which a, a space like Soho developed, it did not develop in this way with large numbers of, of, of self-identified straight individuals going to spend large amount of time in gay identified spaces. That right. is a shift. But as I understand it, it's not simply about gay spaces, right, heterosexuality. 
is about the notion that men can yeah. be, can be can care about can can be dandified in a kind of it's again it's a change it's something that used to be reserved for a few people can now be taken up by a generation who marks themselves in that way by the kind of strut that is now possible for masculinity whether it's however it's Yes, but it's also, uh, but I do think it's connected to this idea of being able to have it all. I mean, if David Beckham is an iconic figure yeah, in this okay. regard. Yeah, I, I think it's very useful, yeah. yeah. But, you know, he's very much fashioned by consumer culture, you yeah. know. His mm. identity, yeah. his play with identity is, is sort of something his advisors pretty much uh, play with. And uh, that's why I would perceive that metrosexuality is a new form of consumer object yeah. and, you know, mm. a very narcissistic object. Okay, perhaps we should draw to a close. Um, I just wanted to bring to your attention that Psychoanalysis at LSE does have a, a website. Um, so if you're at all interested in future events, do have a look at that website, and you can also join our mailing list on that website. So do have a look at that. Thank you very much for coming. It was great to see you. Thank you. Uh, and a big thank you to our speakers as well. Thanks.